This is the TSN MMA Show with Aaron Bronstetter. Welcome to another edition of the TSN MMA Show. I am your host, Aaron Bronstetter, and we have a big week of mixed martial arts ahead of us. The return of a man who many people believe is the greatest of all time. Johnny Bones Jones returns to the cage this weekend to attempt to begin uh, to become rather a two-division champion in the UFC, looking to win the heavyweight championship of the world. It is currently vacant. Francis Ngannou, of course, no longer with the UFC. The title was vacated. He is uh, now a free agent, and he will be facing Surreal Gone to determine who the baddest man on the planet is, at least in the UFC. <laughs> the baddest man in the UFC, if you want to call it that. But uh, either way, I think it's difficult to uh, say that it's not John Jones if he wins this. This is a pretty monumental bout for John to determine his legacy, which a lot of people have kind of already written as uh, at least the greatest in-cage fighter of all time in terms of what he has accomplished inside the cage. Now, what's happened to him outside of the cage, of course, is a different story. And one of the things that people believe disqualify him from being in the GOAT conversation. I I am not among those people, but I do know that those people exist. So... Let's not ignore them. You know, people's beliefs can always be their beliefs. And if they're not convinced that John Jones belongs in the conversation because of certain drug test results and perhaps some extracurriculars uh, outside of the cage, then that's their prerogative and that's their right. So that's what makes the greatest of all time conversation such a hot topic in terms of water cooler conversations. You know, you can look at uh, what John Jones has accomplished in the cage and relegated to that and make that the conversation you can look at the the big picture in terms of everything that goes into what makes a, a legendary career then you start bringing in guys like George St. Pierre into the conversation Habib Anderson Silva you know there are a lot of different things that people can look at and maybe narrow the scope of what they qualify as the greatest of all time but there's in my mind there's no doubt that John Jones is Top of mind when it comes to determining the greatest of all time. And another championship in you know, the heavyweight division, moving up to heavyweight, which only one man, Daniel Cormier, has done previously in terms of those two divisions, light heavyweight and heavyweight. Daniel Cormier, a man who John Jones has defeated on two occasions, one of which was overturned to a no contest. You certainly have to if you're talking at least about accolades, put John Jones in that conversation if he gets a win. And I, I think it's a big if. I think that this is going to be a very difficult matchup for him. Surreal Gone is no joke. He's the real deal. And we can discuss why that's the case on the show here. In fact, because of what took place at uh, UFC Fight Night this past weekend with the main event being Scrap Day of, I'll do a quick recap at the end. I think we're going to focus our attention on UFC 285 here and discuss what is a really stacked card featuring some of the best fighters in the sport and some of the best prospects in the sport. And of course, we'll start with the main event. John Jones is a minus 166 favorite currently on FanDuel at the time of this recording, which is Tuesday morning, February 28th, taking on Cyril Gunn, who's a plus 130 underdog. Now, from a matchup standpoint, this is, again, I think a very interesting matchup because... If you believe that John Jones is going to win this fight and you're willing to put, you know, pay the chalk minus 166, I think you have to ignore certain realities of this fight. And what are those realities? Well, 
let's talk about the first reality, which is that John Jones is not a heavyweight, has not fought at heavyweight. He is now a heavyweight, but previously has not felt the power of a heavyweight. And while Cyril Ghan is, is hardly a one-punch knockout type fighter, it's really difficult to overlook the fact that while people, you know, while he has had some decision wins, decision wins over Tanner Bozer, Jarzinho Rosenstroik, and Alexander Volkov, his two most recent wins have come by KO and TKO. The KO over Tai Tuivasa in a fight where he actually had some adversity to overcome in terms of potentially getting finished. He took a big shot from Tuivasa earlier in that fight, came back and won it. If I recall correctly, he said he doesn't even remember a lot of what happened in the fight because of that particular strike that he took from Tuivasa, or at least portions of the fight. And then, of course, the knockout win over Derek Lewis, which was kind of a one-way traffic interim heavyweight championship bout back in August of 2021. Wedged between those two fights is the decision loss to Francis Ngannou. Now, in terms of things that you have to basically overlook with John Jones is the fact that his two most recent wins over Dominic Reyes and Thiago Santos are perhaps outside of the first Alexander Gustafsson fight, the most vulnerable that he has looked in the cage in terms of potentially getting a loss. Now, MMA decisions is, of course, not the be-all, end-all of, you know, how fights are determined. But at the same time, we do need to look at John Jones' Um, for that bout with uh, Dominic Reyes. Because I think a lot of people, I myself included, at least on the night of, I haven't really gone back and watched it, I probably have to go back and watch it, believed that Dominic Reyes did enough to win that fight. Now, ultimately, that doesn't matter because John Jones won a unanimous decision victory that night. So it's not like this was a closely contested split decision. His fight against Tiago Santos. I was in the room with Brett Okamoto that night, and Brett Okamoto gave that fight to Tiago Santos. Felt that Tiago Santos won, did enough to win a decision. That was a split decision back at UFC 239. So his two most recent fights are the most human he's ever looked. Those fights were three and a half and three years ago, respectively. So the Tiago Santos fight UFC 239 in Las Vegas... UFC 247 against Dominic Reyes, February of 2020, right before the pandemic in Houston, Texas. So we have to remember that. Those last two fights were very, very close fights for John Jones. And now, three plus years later, he's going up a division and fighting one of the best technical strikers that we've seen in the heavyweight division, perhaps ever, in the UFC, in Surreal Gunn. A guy who will probably match him in terms of volume, or perhaps exceed him in terms of volume, a guy who he will not have a, a sizable reach advantage against. Surreal Gunn's reach listed at 81 inches, whereas Jones is 84 and a half. He will not have a height advantage against Surreal Gunn, the taller opponent, which John Jones has not often faced in his UFC career. A younger opponent, which again, John Jones has not often faced in his UFC career. And a fresh opponent, somebody who fought as recently as September. And since the last time John Jones competed, has fought six times. So we have to keep all of this in mind when we're talking about John Jones being able to overcome this hurdle. There are a lot of things going against him here. 
He's not going to have taken punches from somebody that weighs this much going into the cage. I expect Cyril Gaon to weigh... What did he weigh in his last fight? I mean, let's, we can go back and look. But somewhere in the 240 to 255-pound range. He's not going to have felt that power before, at least in competition. Against somebody in the cage, standing in front of him, trying to hurt him badly and trying to win. It's a different thing than sparring against Maurice Green and Walt Harris and Jorgen De Castro in the gym. He'll have felt, you know, something comparable, but not somebody who's trying to take his head off and, and trying to win a championship that night in a full arena. Like, you can't prepare for that ever if you're John Jones. If, if this is your first heavyweight fight, this is going to be the first time he's felt this before. It's really important to note this stuff. Because it's not that John Jones is not going to be able to overcome that. He very well could. I mean, he's John Jones. He's overcome a lot in his career in terms of adversity. But this is a very different kind of puzzle to solve for John Jones, especially a John Jones who has not fought for three plus years. The longest layoff of John Jones's career prior to this, just taking a quick look. Yeah, it's basically like he's never taken more than two years off at a time. It's been one plus year, even when he was going through all of those different issues off, you know, outside of the cage. January 2015 was when he beat Cormier the first time. His next fight after that against OSP, which seems like a long layoff at the time, was like just over a year. It was a year and three months. And then after that, after a suspension, came back again a year and three months later, basically. Year and two months? Year and two months later. To face Cormier the second time after the OSP win. And then after Cormier, where he once again was suspended, came back at the a year and a half later. And then from there was relatively active, was pretty active during that time. Beats Gustafson in December of 2018. Beats Smith three months later, less than three months later, really. Beats Thiago Santos about four months after that. And then beats Dominic Reyes about six, seven months after that. So he hasn't had this kind of a long inactivity in his career. Missed much of his prime years in terms of MMA. Because three years ago, would have been 32 years old. So basically, didn't compete much when he was 32. Not at all at 33, not at all at 34. And now he's coming up on 36 years old in July. So there's a lot of different things that we need to take into consideration here to believe that he is going to be able to beat Cyril Gunn. Now the argument I keep hearing in John's favor is... If Francis Ngannou was able to take down Cyril Gunn, I believe it was four times in their fight, John Jones should be able to have his way with him. Take him down, keep him there. But here's the real question. If you're Cyril Gunn and you're preparing for one of the most ferocious strikers in UFC history in Francis Ngannou, how much takedown defense are you realistically preparing? And who are you preparing you know, with for someone like Francis Ngannou? What type of fighters are you going to be preparing with 
in order to be best prepared to beat somebody in Francis Ngannou, whose takedown game we had not seen really prior. In fact, he landed more takedowns against Cyril Gaon than he had attempted in his UFC career entirely prior to Cyril Gaon. Now, the thing about Gaon is if you look at his UFC career, he really hasn't faced anybody that would, would you know, provide him with the threat of the takedown in a way that John Jones is going to or is expected to. So you have to imagine that for this camp, since this was announced and since the possibility of eventually facing John Jones has been on his radar, I wouldn't be surprised if 80 to 90% of his training, at least if he wants to be well prepared for this fight, is in the grappling realm. Is, is trying to make sure that he can keep his opponent at range and prevent takedowns. And here's the thing about Cyril Gaon. While he does have a lot of decision wins, he doesn't have any real like first-round KO wins in the UFC. In fact, he has none. This is still a guy who can hurt you if you get into his range. And John Jones has got to know that. But here's the thing. If John Jones can take him down, there's a lot of different ways that John Jones can attack Cyril Gaon that perhaps he is not well-equipped for. Because Cyril Gaon isn't somebody who's been training in MMA for a long time. Whereas John Jones has been training in mixed martial arts for, I mean, when was his UFC debut? His UFC debut, which was the first fight I ever attended in person, UFC 87. August 2008. So we're talking 15 years. He made his debut basically almost exactly 15 years ago. So he's been training in MMA for, you have to say, nearly 20 years. Probably close to that. Not to mention his wrestling pedigree in college. Because his college career, if you look at it, what years, like what years would that have been? He won the NJCAA, basically the JUCO championship, quite some time ago. And he dropped out to pursue MMA. But let's do a little bit of simple math. If he was born in 87, that means that he probably would have been in college in about 2005, 2006. And he started his, his MMA career in 2008. So, and it, you know, had he been wrestling in high school, we're talking like 2002, right? So he's been at least doing grappling for a long time. And now here we are all these years later, entering the next chapter of his career against Cyril Gunn. And I'm doing a segment with Robin Black today that's going to air on SportsCenter where we're talking about the different paths to victory. And I'm going to explain why I think that Cyril Gunn is the side here from a betting perspective. So at plus 130, you're getting underdog money on Gunn. Cyril Gunn has... Never been an underdog in his MMA career, in his UFC career and his MMA career as a whole. Never been an underdog. This is the first time you're getting him at underdog value. And of course, only has one loss in his career. So it's hard to really come up with a sample size. But this is the first time we're getting this guy as an underdog. He's in his prime. He's facing a guy that hasn't fought in three years and has never fought at heavyweight. 
And while, again, he is considered one of the best of all time, the closest real comparison we have for this is George St. Pierre moving up to middleweight to defeat Bisping. But the difference there is, you know, no disrespect to Michael Bisping because he won the championship late in his career, but he was kind of past his prime at that time. And from a matchup standpoint, that was a nightmare matchup for Bisping. You can look at it the same way for Gon, right? Like, from a matchup standpoint, if Jones is going to implement a grappling-heavy attack, it's a really bad matchup for Gon if, if Gon is not prepared and is not able to stuff takedowns from somebody who's been wrestling and on the mats for 20-plus years. But I always like to go with the known versus the unknown. And there's a lot of unknown here with John Jones. 35 years old, coming up on 36, which is fine for a heavyweight. Has a decent amount of miles on him. I, like in, in terms of his in-cage minutes, I wouldn't be surprised if he's the, the all-time leader in the heavyweight division. In fact, I can probably look that up right now. Surreal Gunn doesn't have a lot of cage time in his career. So let's look up heavyweight. I'm sure Jones has a lot of these records. Most wins in heavyweight history. Third most finishes. This is light heavyweight history, rather. Most decision wins. So that means, again, cage time. Let's look at, at time in the cage here. Total fight time. John Jones is the leader by more than an hour over the next guy, which is Glover Teixeira. Five hours and 40 minutes of cage time for John Jones. Five hours and 40 minutes. Average fight time. The second longest in light heavyweight history behind Thiago Santos. 15 minutes and 28 seconds. So that's a lot of experience, but there's also a lot of miles. Now, of course, taking three years off, perhaps he's able to be a little bit more fresh. Having all that fight time, I'm sure, is stressful. To be able to maintain that kind of excellence, stressful. So taking time away can help him in that regard. But I can't overlook... The fact that Cyril Gunn is in his prime. He's beating top heavyweights pretty easily. Again, with the exception of Nganu, who defeated him. And if you go back and watch that Nganu fight, this is really important to note. Let's look at the Nganu versus Gunn scorecards. That fight was a unanimous decision for Francis. 48, 47, 49, 46, and 48, 47. All three judges gave Surreal Gan the third, sorry, gave Nganu the fifth round. If you go back and watch that fifth round, if you're looking at it from a criteria standpoint, and I'll pull up the stats for it right here. Just from a criteria standpoint, if you're looking at that fight. In the fifth round, Gan outlanded Nganu, 7-5. I would say landed the bigger fights on the feet. Landed a takedown, which isn't really relevant. Was controlled for 2 minutes and 44 seconds. Three of the strikes that Nganu landed... Or, sorry. During that 2 minutes and 44 seconds, Nganu landed zero ground strikes. At least significant strikes. I don't know about total strikes. We can look at... see totals. Is total strikes here? Let's see if I can find total strikes. That's just significant strikes. Total strikes. He landed 13 total strikes, but it doesn't, it doesn't break down how many of those strikes were on the ground. But zero significant strikes on the ground. That's a round you could have given based on the criteria to Surreal Gun, if you go back and look. That's how close that fight was. 
Plus Gon pulled for that leg lock, which, or heel hook, I believe it was, in the fifth round, which was incredibly ill-advised. So Surreal Gon was very close to winning that night against Francis Ngannou. Very close. That was a year ago, more than a year ago. So Surreal Gon has improved, has made, had time to make improvements over the last year or so. So John Jones is a minus 166 favorite, Surreal Gon plus 130. I would say that, th- that there's great value on Gon at plus 130. And I say there's value on Gon by TKOKO at plus 500. Like we're talking heavyweights here. Could he be the first person to finish John Jones? I don't know. I mean, John Jones is an incredible specimen. He's one of the greatest fighters of all time. In my opinion, the greatest of all time in terms of in cage. In terms of what he's been able to do. His accomplishments. How he's been able to beat people. Who he's been able to beat. Like his resume speaks for itself. But in this situation, I think the side is Cyril Gunn. Could be wrong. It's up to John Jones to prove me wrong. But I'm not a Jones hater. In terms of like what he's accomplished in his career. Like I personally believe he's one of the greatest of all time. I'm just looking strictly at today. Today is John Jones the better fighter than Cyril Gunn. And I'm not convinced. And we're going to find out on Saturday. But I'm not convinced. If he wins, hey, I'll eat my words. No problem. I eat my words almost every week on the show. But I believe that Cyril Gunn has what it takes to defeat John Jones. I think that it's going to be a bad match, like a, a difficult matchup. Not a bad matchup, but a difficult matchup for John Jones if he's not able to, to implement a wrestling-based game. I think on the feet, Cyril Gunn is going to give him problems. And I think that there's a, a learning curve here that might be a little bit too steep at this point in Jones' career. But hey, if Jones does it, even if you want to look at his transgressions outside of the cage, it's, a t- it's tough to say that he's not the greatest of all time. Like I said, I already believe he is. And I think that there are going to be people that no matter what he does, he could win for the next 10 years at heavyweight and retire at age 46, like Anderson Silva, who technically isn't even retired right now. And I still don't know if people are going to give him that designation because of his transgressions. And that's, again, that's on them, not on Jones. Like, Jones can try, try whatever he can to win people over, but he can just keep being John Jones and doing what he does in the cage. And it's up to the people to decide how they feel. There's no award for greatest of all time. Nobody, there's no ceremony. There's no, nobody gives you a trophy. It's not a consensus thing. If you talk to people about basketball, you'll have the LeBron camp, you'll have the Jordan camp, you'll have the Bill Russell camp. If you talk about football, which is even more complex because the positions are also different, you'll have the Brady camp, the Jerry Rice camp. I'd say most people think it's Brady. But either way, there are always going to be people that think it's J- that's Jerry Rice. There are going to be people that played offensive tackle in college that like think it's Anthony Munoz. I don't know. That's just an example. I know, I know a good amount about football, but I don't know. If you ask me today who the greatest offensive tackle of all time is, I don't know. Like, you know. I have no idea. Anthony Munoz comes to mind. (laughs) But I I, I don't know. In fact, I think most football fans probably don't know. You have to be really deep into football to know who, like, the greatest guard of all time is. I don't know. But if we're talking greatest overall of all time, people are always going to have their preferences. Anyhow, let's go to the co-main event. Valentina Shevchenko, minus 670. 
Alexa Grasso plus 430. Now, this is a little bit of an interesting one, right? Because Valentina finally looked very human in her last fight. Not something that had happened to her prior. But still, in her last fight, outlanded her opponent. In her UFC career, outside of her two fights with Amanda Nunes and her one fight with Juliana, I guess, let's go to flyweight then. Let's forget about that. In her flyweight career, she's never been outlanded by an opponent. A little bit trickier to land volume in a heavier weight class when you're kind of small for the division. But she has run through the competition in terms of significant strikes. 98-11 to against Lauren Murphy. And that was like a year and a half ago. Her last fight against Tyler Santos, split decision win, but a win nevertheless. And now she's going to be taking on Alexa Grasso. Now Alexa Grasso has yet to lose at flyweight. Win over Gian Kim, Macy Barber, Joanne Wood, and most recently Viviane Araujo, which is an okay resume. Like it's to me, if you want to get a title shot, you need to beat Chukagian. Like you need to show that you're able to beat Caitlin Chukagian before you get a title shot. I'm not super impressed with her resume, right? So the question is, the resume is not her fault. She gets matched up with against who she's matched up against. So it's not like she lost to Chukagian. She's beaten everybody put in front of her. And she's young. And she's only getting better. She's not, not even 30 yet. But Shevchenko's a very, very steep, steep climb in competition from what she's accustomed to. Like Viviane is good, but like her best win is... De La Rosa, she lost to Chukagian. Joanne Wooden hasn't been, you know, spectacular in recent years. I think it's fair to say that Macy Barber is still going to improve. But, you know, still has time to improve. But she has, she's not the prospect that, I, at least I don't think that she expected to be at this point in time. And that the UFC would have expected at this point in time. And Ji Kim is... What, lost four in a row? So, you know, the resume is not great. And again, not her fault. But is she going to be the person that's going to be able to beat Valentina Shevchenko? Has she faced enough top competition to be ready to face Shevchenko? Now, she's fought Carlos Barza, lost. Fought Tatiana Suarez, lost pretty badly. You know, her best win is probably her last win against Viviana Arujo. I think these odds are justified for Shevchenko. And I think it's going to depend on maybe Grasso has gotten that much better and we just haven't, we just don't know. We haven't seen it. We haven't seen the ceiling yet. We haven't seen, like, has she been a work in progress and she's gotten that much better? I don't know. But for Shevchenko, I think you, you got to look at what she's, you know, able to accomplish. And also, you can't, overlook the chip she must have on her shoulder for people thinking that she's vulnerable now. Like, if there's anybody that is going to have a fight like the one against Tyler Santos where people are starting to question her that is going to want to perform and be dominant with the mindset that they have, Valentina Shevchenko seems like that person. So, 
I have to go with Shevchenko here. I think you can look at the inside the distance at minus 130. If you don't think that she's going to be able to finish Grasso, then maybe you look at the decision prop. But, you know, Shevchenko hasn't had a submission win since the Cachoeira fight. Seems like she's going getting KOs. And Grasso's losses have come either by decision or submission. She's never been knocked out or finished by KO or TKO in a fight. But I would have to side with Shevchenko there. I think the odds are very long. And there's a lot of fighters that have long odds here, including his next fight, Shavkat Rachmanov. If you parlay... Let's, let's, here's a question. If you go on FanDuel, you parlay Shavkat Rachmanov, Bo Nickel, and Valentina Shevchenko. The odds are minus 231. <laughs> like, as you know... No, no value at all there, basically. But, you know, that's just, that's how confident people are that they're going to win their fights. And Shavkat Rachmanov taking on Jeff Neal. Minus 520 favorite for Rachmanov. Jeff Neal plus 350. Neal coming off of a very impressive win over Vicente Luque. I mean, it's tough to go against Rachmanov, right? I mean, Jeff Neal's a great fighter. If anybody can come up with a game plan or find some sort of Kryptonite for Shavkat Rachmanov. It's got to be his coach, Safe Sayud. He's got one of the best eyes for MMA. You can check out his preview, actually, on the, uh, I believe it's on the UFC channel, him and Brandon Fitzgerald breaking down the main event, and I believe maybe also the co-main. But he's just brilliant when it comes to breaking down people's games. But with Rachmanov, we haven't seen much. We've seen him land about, like, 70 significant strikes over the course of four fights. He's getting fast finishes. And he's getting submission finishes. And he's getting KO finishes, right? Like, this guy's a problem. He's really, really good. He's just a very, very cerebral, well-rounded, great fighter. And he's young. He's 28 years old. Basically, not even hitting his prime yet. He's undefeated, 16-0. But Jeff Neal's a tough guy, man. Like, Jeff Neal has only lost fights by, de- by decision in his UFC career. He's never been finished in his UFC career. You know, it's it's going to be difficult for him to find an answer for Shavkat Rachmanov, in my opinion. He's looked good in his recent fights against Magni. He looked terrible, I thought. Against Wonderboy, he looked terrible. Has bounced back. He's come back in, one, in, in really strong fashion against Pons and Ibio and Luque. They're both tough outs. Got a finish against Vicente Luque, which I believe he's the first person to, to ever do that, if I'm not mistaken, to get a KO or a TKO against Vicente Luque. Looked phenomenal in that last fight. And he has so many knockdowns, like in terms of welterweight history. He's got to be in the record books, I'd imagine, for welterweight history for the, for the most knockdowns. I'm going to verify that right now, but I, I would imagine so. And it's not like he's even... Like, let's see. Knockdowns landed. No, he's not, he's not there yet, but he's getting there. In terms of knockdowns per 15 minutes, he's in the top 10. How many knockdowns? Yeah, he's a 3, 5, 6... Eight, yeah, so he's one shy of being on that leaderboard. But uh, the guy's got great power. But I just, you know, he takes, he's one of these take, take one to land one type fighters. His stri- significant strikes landed per minute is 5.27. Significant strikes absorbed per minute is 5.28. So like the epitome of a take one to give one fighter. Until I see somebody give Rachmanov problems, I don't know who I would bet. Maybe I'd bet Hamzat to beat him. 
But even against Leon Edwards, I'd, be, I'd bet Rachmanov right now, today. Against Usman, I'd probably bet Rachmanov today. So against Jeff Neal, to me, it's kind of a no-brainer to take Rachmanov in that spot. And, um, you know, if you can get him to the inside the distance, if you take him inside the distance and Bo Nickel inside the distance and parlay that, parlay that with Shevchenko, you know, maybe you can find some value there. But uh, I think Rachmanov is probably going to get that win. It's a tough fight for Jeff Neal, that's for sure. And he's not the type of guy to shy away from those tough fights. Mateusz Gamrod on short notice taking on Jalen Turner. Gamrod on minus 225 favorite. The comeback on Turner plus 172. Um, I'm going to go with Turner here just because he's had the full camp. He's looked phenomenal in his recent fights. This is a, a big step up in competition for him. But I think he's going to be up for that task. He's great with volume. If he gets taken down, he can cause problems on the ground in terms of throwing up submissions. He's very crafty. He's won five in a row. Not against the best competition, but still has looked really, really dominant. He's got those long arms. Makes him very difficult to, uh, to figure out, especially on short notice. I think this is... Um, I think, it, like right now, if you, can get, if you can get Turner by submission at, over at plus, one five, or plus 500 or above, that's one way I'm going to look at this one. I think that is uh, a good way to approach that particular fight. Gamrot in his career has never been finished. And he's fought really tough opponents. But I think that uh, Jalen Turner might not be the toughest opponent he's fought, but he's a tough puzzle to solve in this short amount of time. Took the fight, I think, on two, two, maybe three weeks' notice. Very, very tough ask. Tall order for Mateus Gamrot. Jalen Turner was supposed to face uh, Dan Hooker. Hooker had to pull out of that fight. So I'm going to go with the underdog. I like Jalen Turner here. I, I just think that there's too many intangibles that he brings to the table to prepare for in such a short amount of time. I think Gamrot's an excellent fighter. But I think that... Uh... And here's the thing. Let's look at Gamrot's UFC career. Comes in. Loses to Guram Kutateladze in his debut. By split decision. Close fight. Beats Scott Holtzman, who's now retired. Beats Jeremy Stevens, who... Might be on the cusp of retirement. Beats Diego Fajera, who's... That's a good win. I mean, I can't write that off. I think Fajera's a very good fighter. Beats Armand Surukian in a fight that most people, I think, gave to Armand. If you're looking at damage, I personally gave that fight to Armand Surukian. And then lost to Benil Dariush. But I think if he's going to implement a takedown-heavy game plan against Jalen Turner, at some point in time, Turner's going to grab that neck. And, you know, I think it's going to be Tough skating for Mateus Gamrot. I think it's going to be unlike something that he's fought before. And I think that's a problem on short notice. To open up the main card, Bo Nickel is a minus 2,200 favorite against Jamie Pickett. 2,200. Whew. I mean, look for props, but Bo Nickel's going to get it done. Maybe you look for a Bo Nickel round two prop if you want some sort of value, if you're looking for value in that sense. But, um... There is not a whole lot of value to be extracted in this fight for Bo Nickel. You can look at round one props. You can look at all kinds of different things. But, uh, yeah. You know, Jamie Pickett in his UFC career is 2-4. and four. 
His wins are over Joseph Holmes and Loriano Steropoli. I don't think Steropoli's in the UFC anymore. I think Joseph Holmes might be, but I'm not certain. To headline the prelims, Cody Garbrandt is back. Moving back to the bantamweight division after a, a, you know, a test in the flyweight division against Trevin Jones. Like This is the perfect opponent right now for Cody Garbrandt. Garbrandt is the favorite, minus 178. Like this is the fight if we that we find out if Garbrandt had has anything left. I mean that was when he fought a Sun Sao, that was the same kind of thing. What does he have left? In this situation, we're gonna find out what he has left. Because Trevin Jones is on a three-fight losing uh, skid against Barcelos, Javid Basharat, Said Jakub Kakramanov, who was recently released. It's amazing to me that Jones is still in the UFC, but they released Kakramanov after one loss. But I digress. Like, I, I can't take Trevin Jones in the spot, but I also would be a little bit concerned about taking Garbrandt at minus 178. So probably a pass overall for me. Drikas Duplessis minus 250. Derek Brunson plus 190. I have to go with Duplessis by KO here. I mean, Duplessis has massive power. And Brunson's been chin-checked in the past. Brunson has said that he's had considered retirement. All the flags are there. For him to get chin-checked by Duplessis. If you can get a plus number on Duplessis by KO. I might even look at Duplessis by KO round one, round two. I don't think it goes to round three. I, you know, I think if Derek Brunson can implement a wrestling-based game plan and, and take him down. I think that's his path. Certainly not one of those like, this is a lock. Duplessis is a decent wrestler, but his takedown defense is still 50% in the UFC. I'm not sure how many times people have attempted takedowns against him. I mean, that's an important stat. Let's take a look and see. He's, he was not, in, in his first two fights, did not face any takedown attempts. Tavares was 0-1 on takedowns. And Darren Till was 1-1 of one on takedowns. And I'm sure he wasn't training takedown defense for Darren Till. No disrespect to Darren Till, but Darren Till not looked, not really known for implementing a wrestling-based game plan. So I'm going to go with Duplessis there. I think Duplessis is the right side. I think that that's a, this is a, an interesting matchup because Duplessis, I think, is moving his way up. Like, if, if he wins this, it's five in a row. He's going to keep moving his way up the middleweight division. And uh, he is a solid fighter. I, I think three gets Duplessis has what it takes to be a top five middleweight very soon. Now, how he does against those guys, that's going to be interesting to see. But I think that Derek Brunson is a, a test that he can pass and will pass. Amanda Hibash, minus 122. Viviane Araujo, minus 104. I like Hibas here. I think Hibas has the higher motor. I think that her output will be um, solid in this fight against a pretty high output fighter in her own right in uh, Araujo. But, um, you know, Hibas lost to Chukagi in her last fight. She was supposed to have another fight, but her opponent pulled out um, leading up to that fight. I can't remember. Oh, it was against uh, Tracy Cortez. Supposed to face Tracy Cortez. She's, it looks like she's staying at flyweight for now. She said that she wants to bounce between the two. But I was actually quite impressed with her performance against Chukagi. It was a split decision. I believe she took that fight on short notice against 
Chugagian, who was ranked one or two at the time in the middleweight division, it was a close fight. I think she can beat Viviana Arujo. I think minus 122 is a, a good number. And I think you look at the decision prop as well, potentially, for Hibas. But at the same time, if, it's, if the decision prop is like plus 150, you may as well just take her straight up. Marc-Andre Berrio is a minus 164 favorite. The comeback on Julian Marquez is plus 128. The thing that surprised me here is you can get over two and a half rounds, or you can get over one and a half rounds at some places at like minus 130. That to me is like a slam dunk. I don't think this fight's going to end early. I think this fight goes the distance. That's what I'll be looking at for this fight. I think it's dog or pass for Marquez, but uh, still, is a very skilled individual. Marquez has moved over to Factory X for his training with uh, Mark Montoya. So uh, no longer, of course, coached by James Krause, as he is not allowed to be. Um, Cameron Simon, once again on the uh, card with his uh, South African training partner, Dricas Duplessis. This time against Mana Martinez. He's a minus 320 favorite. I think Simon is the real deal. And I think that uh, Mana Martinez is a very beatable opponent for him. I think Mana Martinez is very tough. So if, if you can get like a Simon by decision prop, I think that's the way you play this one. I think that's the value. Ian Gary, minus 670. Song Kanan, plus 430. When are they going to test Ian Gary? Like, I think that they need to give Ian Gary a much stiffer test than Song Kanan at this stage in his career. If you can only be a prospect for so long, I mean, you're giving this guy a minus 670 favorite. He needs to face more adversity in his career, in my opinion. But, I mean, Gary should win this fight. He's been training at Team Kill Clip. I'm sure he's getting much better over time. Song Kanan hasn't had a very good win in the UFC. I think Gary's the side. Tabitha Ricci, minus 290. Jessica Panay, plus 215. I mean, I think this fight goes to, to a decision, but I don't think I'm... Uh... You could look at a Ricci submission prop, but uh, that one's just a total pass for me. And uh, there's no line yet over at FanDuel for Rajabov versus Rebovix. Rajabov was supposed to be on the Ultimate Fighter. According to Gilbert Burns, his teammate, he got bumped from the show for one of Conor McGregor's training partners, or somebody that Connor brought over. But worked out well for him. He's now going to be on a pay-per-view card against Esteban Rybovich. Short notice, but he's a pretty big favorite. I, I like Rajabov. I think he's a really good fighter. But Rybovich is a good prospect. And um, I think that could be a tough ask for him. I, to me, it's dog or pass for Rybovich. But uh, that's a, a pass for me altogether, in my opinion. I believe that that, that fight opens the card. It does. At least according to UFCstats.com, that'll be the opener. But uh, I'm not sure if the full card has been released as of yet in terms of the order. But that's it. That's UFC 285. Uh, let's get a quick recap of the weekend. Because there was a, there was a fight card between Arnold Allen defeating uh, Andre Muniz. Great win for him. Of course, this fight card was supposed to be headlined by Nikita Krylov taking on Ryan Spann. That fight fell off in the hours leading up to the card due to uh, illness on the Krilov side. Had Ryan Spann get up and talk to the media, it's just totally devastated. I don't know why you have him come and talk, but I guess he's already there. If you're going to pay him some sort of show money, I guess those are his obligations. Felt bad for him uh, having to be up there and answering questions. Uh, so Brandon Allen defeats Andre Muniz's third round submission. And I think we learned a lesson here because Brandon Allen is really good with submissions and so is Andre Muniz. But Andre Muniz, just because he's really good at jiu-jitsu, we learned this, I think, from that fight with uh, Anthony Hernandez, where he got um, a big win 
over a submission ace in his own right back when he fought him. I believe it was another third round submission against Rodolfo Vieira. I was in the second round. Even if somebody's really good at jiu-jitsu, if you wear them down, that doesn't necessarily mean their submission defense is going to be there. And that's what Brandon Allen did. I thought this fight was a trap the whole way, to be honest. I thought it screamed trap. I was telling people that all week because Allen was the underdog there. And I was correct. One thing I said all week was that Augusto Sakai was going to be Dante Almeida's by decision. And uh, that's exactly what he did. Congrats to Augusto Sakai getting back on the, win- on, uh, the winning ways after a four-fight losing skid. Tatiana Suarez, also back, defeats Montana De La Rosa via guillotine choke. I thought she looked really good, but not great. Like against Montana De La Rosa, that's a tough opponent. She's fighting up a weight class. This is something you can look at with John, the John Jones, like a long layoff going up a weight class, but not comparable in terms of the skill. Like Suarez wasn't facing a championship caliber fighter. But Suarez looked like a... She was there to win, and she got the win. She's now ranked number 13 at strawweight, so riddle me this. She's ranked number 3 at strawweight before they pull her from the rankings for inactivity. Comes back, wins at flyweight, and now she's ranked 13 at strawweight. What's going on here? they got to figure this stuff out. Because there's no way to me, Suarez, if she's going to be ranked, shouldn't be in the top 5 in either of those divisions. If she's going to rank her at flyweight, top 5. If she's going to rank her at strawweight, top 5. We know how skilled she is. She's never lost, and she's dominated everybody. Except for maybe Nina Nunes, because she fought with like a, she tweaked her neck in that fight, which kept her out three and a half years. I mean, of course she got injured subsequently, but I digress. Like Suarez has dominated everybody. She dominated Carla Esparza, who was the champion last year. Give her some respect. Like if you're going to reintroduce her to the rankings, she's top five. She's top five. She needs one more win to get to a championship um, opportunity, in my opinion. So that's my take on Tatiana Suarez getting a nice win there. Good night for the training partners from Niagara top team. Mike Malott scores a uh, arm triangle submission. I should also say Mike Malott kind of cross trains, trains the team Alpha Male, trains with uh, Crew Allen of of course uh, over in Sony Creek. But he get a, gets a beautiful submission, arm triangle choke against Johan Linus in the first round. One of the Canadians had to lose. Um, you know, not great for Johan Linus. Hopefully they give him another one in the UFC because. Uh, yeah, I mean, him and Malat trained together like a year ago. They didn't think they'd end up facing each other. And Jasmine Jazdevicious with a 30-26 across the board against Gabriela Fernandez. Dominant, dominant second round. Had her in a crucifix, which is dropping elbows. This was the Jasmine Jazdevicious that I think we were all expecting at this point in time. She really improved, stepped up her game, and uh, looked great. I think that the odds for her, with it being close odds, were because it was a very similar situation to the, the time that she lost against Natalia Silvan, who, uh, of course... That was not short notice. That was somebody who had been kind of inactive. We didn't really know how good she was going to be. And she came out and she beat Jazz Divicious, who was a favorite. In this situation, I think people thought Fernandez, you know, she's fight, you know, we don't know what to expect. Similar circumstances, but Jazz Divicious answered the call and, uh, and looked great. Uh, we also had Bellator, which had a really good event. I believe it was Bellator 291. Let me double check that. And, of course, we saw a dominant, dominant win for Yaroslav Amasov over Logan Storley. This fight was not close. 50-45s across the board. Amasov. Like, if I was to bet my house on one champion from Bellator beating one champion from the UFC, I'd take Amasov against Leon Edwards today. No disrespect to Leon Edwards, but I think Amasov is really good. I think there's less volatility in 
that fight than if you take Johnny Eblen against Alex Pereira, which I think most people would choose. But I would take uh, Amosov against Storley. Oh, sorry, Amosov against uh, Edwards. And another to, to make it even better for Canadians this past weekend, Jeremy Kennedy defeats Pedro Carvalho. Unanimous decision, 30-27s across the board. Another dominant win for him. And then we had boxing, which I don't typically talk about on the show. But I'm going to give a couple minutes to this Jake Paul, Tommy Fury fight. Why are we watching these things? Like, why do we watch that? That's the big question for me. Like, it's intriguing. And the fight was, like, entertaining. It's, but there's so much better boxing out there. And I, I keep saying this when it comes to the fights for Jake Paul. And I barely watched this fight. I wasn't really interested in it. I watched it for the sake of this show, basically. Tommy Fury gets the win. I think it really hurts the stock of Jake Paul. Because now who's Jake Paul beaten? He's beaten a YouTuber. He's beaten a basketball player. And he's beaten three retired, basically, or three really past their prime mixed martial artists. Tommy Fury's the only guy that's actually had any sort of boxing experience. It wasn't a very good boxing experience, beating people with, you know, not good records. And then Jake Paul, during all leading up to fight week, slags him for facing bums, basically, in boxing and having this padded record. And then he comes out and he beats Jake Paul pretty decidedly. That one knockdown for Jake Paul is really the only thing that would raise any sort of questions as to who won that fight. And a lot of people thought that was a slip. I thought it was a legit knockdown, but whatever. It's just like, where do we go from here with Jake Paul? Like, is Jake, how, how much longer is Jake Paul going to hold our attention for? I'd be interested in seeing him do mixed martial arts. Like, I'm curious to see what that looks like. I guess that's what that is, but we've seen him box a bunch of times now. Like, if he boxes against Tommy Fury again, are we really that interested? If, we box, if he boxes Nate Diaz, are we interested because it's Nate Diaz boxing or because it's Jake Paul? Or maybe it is a, a mix of the both, of the two. And if you're Nate Diaz, are you going to want to box a guy that just came off a loss in Jake Paul who's bigger than him? To me, there's not a whole lot of rub that you can get off of that, that fight. In fact, there's a lot more for Jake Paul to gain than for Nate Diaz to gain. And I heard on Helwani's show, he wants to see the KSI rematch. Like, if he wants to watch that, go ahead. I'm not watching that. I'll tell you right now. If Jake Paul boxes KSI, I have zero, not a modicum of interest in watching that. I do not care. And this isn't for me. I understand that. The Jake Paul boxing matches aren't for someone like me. I don't cover boxing <laughs> to begin with. I'm a boxing casual, admittedly. But if you're going to take two YouTubers, and like that's that's the... The gimmick? I didn't watch the first fight between them. I've never seen KSI box. I don't know what it looks like. I couldn't pick KSI out of a lineup. Maybe that's because I'm a washed 41-year-old dude. If you took like five people and you stood them next to each other and said, pick which one's KSI, I'd have no idea. I'm not even sure my son would. My son's 11 or 12. I don't think he'd know who KSI is. Look at me butchering my son's age. I'm a little bit under the weather today. I'm sure you can tell from my voice, but we truck through. So yeah, I just don't know where Jake Paul goes from here. And I'm not sure I care that much. If he's going to transition to MMA full-time, that's cool. Like, I'll watch that. I watch every MMA, major MMA show. 
I'll watch every PFL event. They do a pay-per-view with him, great. If they did a series with him and Nate Diaz where they do boxing and then do MMA, I'd be interested in that too. But mostly because of Nate Diaz. And I'm sorry if I sound like some sort of hipster here, like, oh, guys being a contrarian. I just don't care that much about it. If you do, that's fine. Like, there's nothing for everybody here. Even the slap fighting thing. I don't care about it. I don't cover it. If somebody else cares about it, that's great. Like, that's their decision. We, are, we have free will in this life. We can take our time and we can devote it to whatever we would like to devote it to. It's part of the, the good thing of having free will, if you're lucky enough to have free will on this earth. We have the free will to take our, our spare time that we have, our me time, and dedicate it to what we deem to be worthy of that time. Whether it's music, whether it's video games, whether it's table tennis, whether it's flying kites, whether it's parasailing, whatever floats your boat, man. I'm not here to judge you. If you want to judge me for not caring about Jake Paul's boxing matches, I'm here to be judged. That's fine. Call in the jury. Maybe their unanimous verdict is that I'm a lame I don't know. Whatever. It's just not for me. If you want to spend a lot of your time talking about it and building it up and, and all that and interviewing these guys, more power to you. If they do a rematch, they offer me an interview with Jake Paul, I'll talk to Jake Paul. They interview, offer me an interview with, with Tommy Fury, I'll probably talk to Tommy Fury too. Does that make me a hypocrite? Maybe. I don't know. I'm just going to be me. I'm just going to be me in this life. I've earned that. When I was born as me, I've earned the right to be me. And to do whatever I, I feel is the right thing to do at any given moment. Or the thing that I want to do. That's what it is. And what this was, was the TSN MMA show. Thank you for tuning in this week. I will be heading off to Las Vegas tonight. You can get my content there. I'll be having lots of interviews, talking to the fighters on this week's card. My voice is just about shot, so I hope you enjoyed what was left of it, and hopefully I can get some of it back by the time I land in Las Vegas tonight. But I appreciate you. If you have a chance to rate and review the show, please do. Thank you for tuning in. You can go to www.aaron.report for all of my work, tsn.ca slash UFC for my coverage this week. Be kind, be well, and be enthusiastic. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the TSN MMA Show. For all the latest UFC news, visit tsn.ca slash UFC.